evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Crossroads. If you're brand new, my name is Dan Mike. Um, if you're ser searching out a community uh, that's charmingly imperfect, imperfect um, you've come to the right place. If you're seeking out a lot of laughs, maybe you're at the wrong service. I don't know. I, I have to work on it a little bit. Is everybody feeling a little tired? Can't get the lights on. We don't need them on. It's fine. Leave it dim. Okay, anyway, so I uh, <laughs> prepared some thoughts and challenges for you from Matthew chapter 5. If you turn there, if you have a Bible, if not, we have some randomly placed around the room on tables. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. And seeing as this is the, the last uh, cluster of verses in the chapter, let me remind you some of the things that have been said so far in chapter 5. Uh, Matthew in general has... Uh, Five grand speeches uh, in his uh, gospel narrative that he's woven throughout the story. And this is the first and the longest, and I would say the best of all of those speeches that we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus lays out kind of what life will look like in what he calls the kingdom of heaven. What life would look like if God's rule and reign were influencing the daily life of uh, people who live in his kingdom? And so, uh, as he begins to lay this out, when Jesus starts a world-changing kingdom, he doesn't send in tanks or missiles or military might. Jesus sends in the poor in spirit. Jesus sends in the meek and the merciful. He uses those who are hungry, hungry for righteousness, the pure in heart, peacemakers, and the persecuted. It's notable. After the, that section of the Beatitudes, the last uh, group that he uh, speaks of there is, blessed are you when you are insulted and people lie about you and say all kinds of false things against you and then without skipping a beat, he says, you are the light of the world. What is the connection between persecution and, and the light of the world? It's not just that persecuted people are shiny. It's that there is something going on in the hearts of the people of Christ when they are being persecuted that the world can't deny is there. There's something going on internally for people who have Christ this hope, this brilliant, radiant hope that you can see from a mile away. It's salty, it's magnetic, it's interesting, and it's useful. This is by design, the way that the, the kingdom uh, is going to turn the world upside down. When the world sees the people of this kingdom, can't help but look at them and attribute some sort of connection to the divine. Or as Jesus said it, when they see your good deeds, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He then goes on to continue on this pattern of, of saying what he values is not what is on the outside, but rather what is on the inside by starting a religious critique. Because what they had uh, started to fall prey to is that the, their religious people did look good on the outside, but in reality, they had some issues on the inside. 
he prefaces it by saying, look, I know you're going to think that I'm unbiblical. I know you're going to think that I'm um, misinterpreting the Bible, but I'm actually here to show you how to live it out. And what I value in living out the scriptures is not the external looking good, but the internal being cured and being pure. So he takes issue with people who might look good on the outside and, and, and gives an example of someone who goes to uh, worship and looks good, but in the inside has hatred for his brother. On the outside, might have crossed all your uh, T's and dotted your I's, but on the inside, you have lust and you have abandoned your spouse. On the outside, you might have said all the right things, but you are not trustworthy. And what's causing someone to lie? What's causing someone to hate? What's causing all these things to happen internally? And Jesus wants to deal with those. He will not settle for a group of people that just look good. He is the cure and wants us to be healthy and healed and better and redeemed. And it will be better for the entire world if this is uh, the pattern and process of what happens for his people. And so, you know what? If you have been listening to any of the messages or praying through any of these texts for the last few months and your heart has just been pulled into the direction of sacrificing some sort of external thing that looks good for the sake of having a genuine, authentic faith, I just want to encourage you to lean into that. Even tonight, if there's just one person, two, who just, it's, you know that it's been, there's a dissonance between what's on the outside and the inside, and it's not good. I want to encourage you to pray for that, to talk to somebody, and to move towards Christ. There is healing, direction, and purpose for you. Um, so he talks through all these close relationships, but what I'm about to read to you is actually where he pushes it farther into the hardest relationships uh, conceivable. So if you've turned to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, I will read from 38 to 48, and if you'll stand with me for the reading, um, if you're able to, please do. Matthew 5 and verse 38 says, You have heard it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say, do not resist the evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks. Do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. For it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing this? And if you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. begin with a short parable. Once upon a time, there was a group of disciples who interacted with Jesus, and they were blown away. They saw, surely this is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Surely this is the Messiah. And so they devoted their life to him and said, we're all in. But what that ended up looking for them was for them to wait for the revolution to happen. And so they set up camp. They didn't really... Uh, 
change their life very much. They just said, soon, someday, the Messiah is going to do this for us, and they became complacent. Knowing this, Jesus re- uh, came back to their village and preached a sermon, wherein which he said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, but here's what I say. Do not resist the evil person. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the left. If somebody asks for you to go one mile, go two. Convicted by these words, they decided to start their own church. So they built a church. They called it the Congregation of the Second Mile. They chose to make the second mile. They devoted their life to doing that. I'm gonna walk the second mile every time someone asks me to walk one. They actually had an outstanding relationship with the Romans. They, they genuinely were liked by everybody in the town. They had a great reputation. They started to get a little prideful about it and, and leaning on their own strength. Jesus came back to the village to preach a message. They all gathered around, hoping to hear the same thing, hoping to be somewhat validated, and Jesus looked at them and said, I have a similar message for you, for you do not understand the first one. For in your law it says to walk two miles, but in my law it says to walk three. The purpose of this parable is to illustrate an ongoing tension that I um, kind of see continuing to happen in our day where I would like to, um, where I like to refer to as the difference between the kingdom and the cross. The kingdom and the cross. What's the difference? People who are kingdom oriented. I kind of fall a little bit myself probably too much in this category. It's a boots on the ground. It's a, this person's going to, no matter what, uh, get it done, like tr- just all in, whatever Jesus says, let's do it. I mean, tell me I'm the only one who sees that verse that says, give to the one who asks, and you're not like, okay, that's it, pretty black and white. This is exactly what I have to do. Next time somebody asks me to give, I'm gonna give. Doesn't matter. That's what Jesus said. Do it. I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble for some of these dogmatic statements that sound pretty simple. One comes to mind where Will and I were working on uh, my home now that I live in before I lived there, and we had a bunch of stuff in there, and Somebody stopped by and knocked on the door and they're like, when we were driving by, we saw this bed frame in the window. And my wife loves it and I was just wondering if I could buy that from you. And I'm so shocked by this interaction because I, I wasn't expecting to be selling things that, and I'm looking at Will and we're both like, in the, and I just said, look, if you want the bed, you can have the bed. Why, just take the, I'm not gonna sell you this bed. I mean, if you want it that bad that you would stop here and come in my back door and talk to me in the middle, you can have the bed. It's a gift to you. And then to this day, Chelsea and I still don't have a bed frame. And she, <laughs> and she is like, why did you give away our bed? What are you doing? You can just give the bed. I'm like, I, it was an awkward situation. And Jesus says to give, it's a Christian thing to do, give the bed. Sometimes you could get all kingdom and you could get too much into uh, just uh, into justice or into doing uh, the work of the kingdom, which is fine. I say yes and amen. We should be doing the work of the kingdom. I mean, there's an underrated line in the Great Commission what says, teach them to do everything that I've commanded you to do. We should be doing this stuff. The problem is, if you overemphasize on kingdom, easily start to become doing it on your own strength. 
easily start to become prideful. Easily can start to, instead of pointing and reflecting to the Messiah, one could become the Messiah himself. Take the weight of the world on your shoulders. Have to do it and then become uh, legalist and, and threatened by everybody who doesn't share the same conviction as you. And then it turns into a religion. Jesus did not come to just start a mere new religion, a new set of rules. He doesn't want to be put next to all the other isms of this world. That is why, by nature, most of the things he says are vague, are up to you to figure out. He trusts us to figure out what it looks like to love. What, it, what does it look like? You get to decide in your context. This prohibits us from being super strict about everything that he said. It's tricky in some of these lines uh, that we read tonight. That's why we need the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus is really the power through which we actually get to do kingdom work. You need the death and resurrection, you need the cross. I like to say it's the muscle behind the hustle. It's the motivation behind the kingdom work is this, this example of the crucified Christ. But if you think about it, you could just live in all cross world. And you could just say, you know what? He did that, he lived the life that I live, he died the death that I, you know, I'm, I can't do anything. <laughs> I'm not good at doing the kingdom things and so I'm just gonna let him do that. And then become too far on this side of the spectrum and be drifting off into irrelevance. It's not just the death of Jesus that I think is the, the, the perfect intersection of cross and kingdom. Because if you think about it, could Jesus just have lived a long life and as an you know, old person had just die a natural death and that still count as the death thing? It seems like it would be a little bit different if that were the case. Um, let me illustrate this even further. If Jesus would have um, died the same way, uh, if he were the lamb of God, if he would have died the same way as one of the lambs would have died, would it still be the same? I mean, could you imagine Jesus and his disciples, they're in the basement of some house somewhere, and he says to Peter, you know what, I've taught you everything I know, and this is gonna sound a little weird, but I need you to kill me don't worry, everything's gonna be fine, I promise you, but this is the, th I'm, the I'm the lamb. Just kill me, make it painless, and let's get this over with. Why did Jesus die the way he died? Why is the suffering a part of the story? I think that this is the perfect intersection of the kingdom and the cross, and it can be articulated perfectly in verse 44, when Jesus said, love your enemy. Kingdom stuff is great. Ethical teachings of Jesus are very powerful. They're a high standard. They're something I think we all should live for. But you know what? There's a lot of other people who said similar things. You could read uh, rabbinic literature and you can dive into all the sayings of Chazal and you can see that there are some similarities. I mean, Rabbi Hillel did say some things like, uh, judge not lest ye be judged, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, a little after Christ, Rabbi Abi, who said, God blesses people in the rain, righteous and the unrighteous. 
The Shema is the greatest commandment. But no other rabbi that I can find, no other person even in the Bible would ever dare to say, love your enemy. This is the teaching and this is the call that sets a Christian apart. This call is, is so unique and so counterintuitive uh, that it actually flips the systems of the world upside down. People don't know what to do with this. Even Paul said in Romans chapter five, um, sometimes people do die for good people. I mean, <laughs> well, who's ever heard of somebody dying for an enemy? But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The huge upset, the perfect intersection of cross and kingdom is in the suffering Messiah. Um, we see a beautiful picture in Revelation chapter five where there's this scroll and nobody can open it and so everybody's bummed out. And then there's an angel who proclaims with a loud voice, behold, there is one who's worthy to open the scroll. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah, kingdom. And then I looked, he says, and I saw, not a lion, the lamb who was slain, cross. He has overcome. He is worthy to open the scroll. And this overcome through uh, self-sacrifice becomes this new motif, this uh, throughout the book of Revelation, the overcomer is the one who doesn't shrink back from death, but by the word of the testimony and the blood of the lamb, they overcome. It becomes a new uh, way to articulate what we're doing here. It's, it's the call of the Christian to not arbitrarily, but almost feels kind of meaningless sometimes to suffer and in a sense to love your enemy because your enemies don't get it. They don't deserve it. There's not a, you know, a perfect trade, something that, that they've earned. And that's why this teaching is so hard for us to understand, especially in our society. One of the layers of com complications in loving your enemy, I have just because I'm guilty Christian. One of the guilty, maybe you resonate with this or not, but I have a guilt Christian layer that uh, I have on me where I was reflecting this week and I was thinking, am I even allowed to call someone an enemy? Is this against kind of my, I mean, is that loving to say that this is an enemy and I'm supposed to love them? I mean, what if they found out that I was calling them my enemy? I don't want to be called someone's mortal enemy. I mean, I would hope that they would talk to me and sort of figure this out because I, don't, I would hate it to be called an enemy. And surely this isn't the, the Satan demon enemy like thing that we're being called to love. Uh, we're being called to love people. When you have the Christian guilt puzzle here about loving enemies, I think that it's, um, it's not just because you decide that someone is an enemy. I think that the word enemy can, can also mean the, the adversarial people in your life, the people that are kind of against you, and you know who that is. I got my nose broke in the family pantry parking lot half a mile from here for condescendingly telling someone not to drink and drive, and that's kind of enemy-ish, I'd say. I mean, I wasn't, I, I mean, it's just sort of adversarial, and I'm sure that you have situations like that, and the Jesus question here is, is what do you do? When your 
uh, confronted with the enemy type person. One, another hard uh, layer of how to do this is that our culture loves revenge stories. This is one of those, we're not very faithful little situations because a lot of us like to pepper into our uh, diet a little bit of revenge. We have movies and stories and books that celebrate revenge. We have idioms that we say on a regular basis, like, that guy had it coming. Like, uh, what goes around comes around. Payback time, baby. Or I was playing the sacred game of ping pong earlier this week, and I kept saying, the ball never lies. What does that even mean? I, I mean, it's like there's some sort of karma, Holy Spirit thing punishing you for a bad call earlier. And, it, it, and, and that's just a feeling of vengeance. It's a feeling of vindication, you know? And I, I like that feeling. How can we expect to actually love our enemy when it actually counts, when we're doing small steps towards uh, the side of revenge on a regular basis? I mean, I, I know that I've shared this before, but many of the jobs that I've had in my life, there was, there's always some sort of code between employees of things that are wrong that you would do, just we all agree it's fine, because we're gonna stick it to the man, or because upper management doesn't get us, and this is what we're gonna do to get, it, get them back, or when I worked at Starbucks, they would decaf people who, I did not ever do this, but some would decaf people who were rude customers, and it would be a way to kind of punish them. You want your coffee? Seven decaf shots? Be nice to your barista. That's all. I mean, that, I don't know if this, this is new to you. Um, we can't be taking our cues from the world on how we treat people. You've heard that it was said, decaf the bad customer. But here's what I say. We don't fight back. Walk the extra mile. Give more than you were asked to give. Take it farther than you were, than you were expected to take it. One step in the right direction about loving your enemy, I would say, is to let the cross turn you into a generous person. And you start to do that by evaluating how much do I believe, how much Jesus is there to go around. If there's a limited quantity of Jesus to go around in this world, we'll start to treat it the way we treat gold. You know, it's a precious, valuable thing. And there's only so much of it to go around, and you can't have some, but you have to earn it. And if we start being stingy, or if we start hoarding the Jesus, the forgiveness, the redemption, the gospel, and start making people earn it, then we will not be able to walk that extra mile. Or they're gonna pay for it. We will not be able to give and give and give. We, we will have to have some sort of transaction relationship with this person. We'll never be able to love our enemy. We'll be able to maybe serve our enemy or, or help them, but they're gonna pay us back. Verse 45 gives us a great example of what legacy we're living in when it says, your father in heaven 
is as generous with the unbeliever as he is with the believer, just you can see it in the sun. You can see it in the overflow and the abundance of the rain. Be like this. It's connected to that verse 48, what says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I have kind of a dissonance with that verse, admittedly, but it's inconsistent. Let me explain. This verse, this word perfect is translated like 20 times in the New Testament. Half of them, it just says mature. First uh, John 4, 18, here's another one. Perfect love casts out fear. Now, I've never read First John 4, 18 and, and thought the same thing that I think from Matthew 5. I've never thought, if I love someone perfectly, then it will cast out fear. I've, I've always just felt like this meant the love of God, the mature, ideal, the love, the, the, the real love. There's not gonna be any fear in that, in that relationship. So why is it when I see Matthew 5, 48, I think I have to do this perfectly. It's some Greek Roman baggage I think that I have with the word perfect. But I read this book by David Flusser, a renowned uh, Jewish scholar who's an expert on the Second Temple period, as well as an expert on the teaching of Jesus. And in his book, The Sage of Galilee, I remember he specifically brought up this verse and he said, it's better to translate this in light of the God who doles out sun and rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. And he said it would read uh, to him more accurately to say, the love of God is limitless. Therefore, let your love for your enemy know no bounds. Just as the love of God is endless, like the sun, and it's just, it's unconditional and benevolent and generous, let your love for your enemy know no bounds. Maybe today, it's time to evaluate, have I been kind of stingy with the gospel, and am I been withholding from some people who are adversarial in my life, and how can I step towards them with a wide open heart that says there's enough Jesus to go around? What if you don't know your enemy? Well, if you don't know your enemy, maybe it's a big organization or maybe a, a people group or, or you've set boundaries because you can't be in the room with that person or something has happened to you and, and it's just better to not be around. Well, the second half of verse 45, I find helpful where Jesus says to pray. Pray for your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. This is a minimum. This is a big deal. When's the last time that you prayed for your enemy? And I know sometimes for me, I slide into, instead of praying for somebody, I pray about somebody. I don't know if you've ever done this before. It's kind of like a mix between venting, gossip, and imprecatory psalms. It's like, um, God, this person is so, it's frustrating to give me mercy so that I can forgive them and they're just in my way and I can't. I know, it's just this not praying for them. It's just about them. Well, okay, that might be one step in the right direction, but if your heart is still cold towards your enemy, uh, maybe you need to actually start praying for them with a pure heart and start to, to seek to bless them, to pray for their life, to pray for their family, to pray for their soul, to pray for their spirit and God to open their eyes and, and to move in their life. I don't know about you, but it seems like every single president someone thinks is the Antichrist. 
every single time. I, it, just, it just comes up. There's always this way of telling if it's the Antichrist or whatever. And if that's where you are in any election, I would encourage you to get on your knees and pray. And the reason for that is just, could you imagine if you woke up one morning and there was a speech going on on TV and it was an elected official, it was the person you prayed for and he or she is just saying, I don't know what happened last night, but I overwhelmed by this, I think God, it just met me and it's, and it's just changed my life. And now I've got so much that I, that I wanna do and change. And I, can, can you imagine seeing something like that happen? And if you can't, then I gotta ask, do you still believe in the power of prayer? And do you believe that Jesus would have prescribed it in the second half of verse 44 if he didn't believe in it? Do you believe that mountains can move? Well, what is the mountain for you? A racist organization, somebody that's in charge of the KKK, can God, is he too far, too far to be reached by God? Is, is it a terrorist organization? Is there a person too far to be reached by the, uh, to, is their heart too far gone or can God still reach them? Is it someone who organizes sex trafficking and, and can you pray for them? Can you pray for the people that actually are adversarial in this world and do you believe that God is still able to reach them? I do. And I wanna see that happen. And maybe tonight, you just need to, to, to bring it to God and say, awaken my heart again to love, to pray, and to believe in you. Give me even just a mustard seed size, size faith. Can this happen? Well, I have a video to show you, uh, just a minute long, of something that I think is kinda of cool that happened just last week, uh, week and a half ago, and so, I think that this is what it kind of looks like. I'm not gonna say I hope you are right and die. It's just like I'm not really big, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't gonna say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best. For me. Because I know that's what ethics is not what both of them want you to do. And the best would be get your life to Christ. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. I know that there's a lot of controversy and drama about this whole story. I'm not trying to make a statement or anything about how court should be done or anything like that. I'm just saying, I see a man whose brother was wrongfully killed and he sees the guilty 
And he says, I'm, I want to forgive you, and I want you to be free, and I want you to know Jesus. An 18-year-old, to be able to do that, that I think is just an extreme bullseye for what it could look like for us to love our enemy. But it will not happen. We will not have the resilience and fortitude to be able to do that unless we are praying and we are people who are doing little things, uh, faithful with little things, then we will be faithful with much. This type of thing comes from and flows from the transformation that happens inside of us. So for my final comment I'd like to make, it would be on verse 45, verse 48, 5-9, 6-9, 6-14, 6-15, 6 18, 6, 19, and the list goes on where Jesus specifically re references uh, the way of life in this kingdom being done by people who are sons and daughters of their Father in heaven. The overflow of our identity causes us to be able to confirm what this family believes and who we are in this family. It doesn't purchase uh, you know, a place in the kingdom if we act this way. This is just how, this is what the transformation of being adopted into God's family looks like. Pray for your enemy so that you can prove your sonship, daughtership, your father's in heaven. If you don't know that you are a part of the family of God, and that's something that I want you to pray about today and ask him to tell you what he really believes about you. And so, yeah, why don't we just pray about that for a little bit, even now. We commend all this to you, Lord. Um, please do a work in this room. If anybody here is being stingy with your gospel and your truth and not extending your forgiveness and redemption to their enemy, encourage them to be able to, to see the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love in this world. Take them farther than they think they could go. Help them to be able to walk that mile, that extra mile, and confirm that this goes even farther than anybody would ever expect. If anybody has just become cold and unable to pray or some sort of nihilism worked their way into their spirituality, I pray that you would, would you fan the flame that's in their heart. Maybe it's just a little ember, but fan the flame and do the impossible. You show them that prayer matters. Even this week, if there's something uh, that they can pray for, this, something big or small, that, that give them just the encouragement that you are listening, you care what they say. If there's any of us who don't know that we are a part of your family and you, you are unashamed to call us your uh, brothers and sisters and that you in bringing many sons to glory suffered for us and that you will not leave us as orphans but you will adopt us help that truth that formative formative transformational truth to be so sure and solid in uh, my brothers and sisters hearts here tonight that we were able to go out from here and confirm that in the way that we treat even our enemies amen